Hello, I'm Jim Rowe from the International Monetary Fund. Today we're going to explore the crisis in the global economy and in global finance. In its most recent forecast in late January 2009, the IMF painted a dire picture of the world economy. The fund's world economic outlook predicted that global growth would fall to almost zero this year, which would be the worst performance since World War II. Moreover, it could get worse. Things are no better in global financial markets. Indeed, it was a crisis in finance that triggered the sharp decline in global growth, which has taken down important financial institutions in the United States and Europe. And despite major efforts by governments to shore up their financial system, fear, paralysis, and mounting losses continue. I have with me Charles Collins of the IMF's Research Department, who oversees the World Economic Outlook, and Laura Kodris of the IMF's Monetary and Capital Markets Department, who oversees the Global Financial Stability Report. Charles, less than two years ago, the world was growing nicely, inflation seemed mainly under control, and poverty was receding. Now you're talking about the worst economic conditions in more than 60 years. What happened? Well, Jim, that's a, an excellent question. It's a question that uh, many are asking at, at this time. Uh, certainly two years ago, the global economy was performing well, but even then there were clouds on the horizon, clouds that we discussed in our World Economic Outlook report and, and also in the Global Financial Stability report. We saw uh, housing markets increasingly overvalued, in, including in the United States. Uh, we expressed concern about very large current account imbalances, large current account deficit in the U.S., large surpluses in, in Asia. Uh, we were worried about the low real interest rates declining uh, spreads in, in markets. Uh, but I don't think anyone anticipated that uh, these, these issues could lead to a, a, a global collapse that, that of the sort that, that we have seen. The, the fragility of the system has been much greater. Uh, and I think that reflects uh, evolution that uh, has occurred in the global financial system that, that Laura, I'm sure, will, will expand on. Uh, the weaknesses in risk management, the rapid growth of the shadow banking system that is largely underregulated, uh, and the very rapid increase in, in leverage in the financial system. And as a result, uh, a shock to the, to the U.S. housing market, the, the U.S. subprime mortgage crisis uh, in August 2007, has rapidly transformed into this global crisis that is probably the most dangerous crisis that we have seen since the Great Depression. Laura? What appeared to be a blip in a small part of the huge U.S. financial market instead turned out to be a, the tip of a global financial crisis. Let me echo the question I just asked Charles. What happened? How could things unravel so fast? Well, you're right to point out that the subprime area and the mortgage market was really quite small, and it ended up being really the tip of a very large iceberg. Uh, I think what really happened here was that there was a serious degradation of lending standards, and the place where it was most egregious was in the subprime market, and now we're seeing that, in fact, those lending standards had deteriorated across a large number of categories, including other residential real estate loans, consumer credit, commercial real estate, and even in the corporate loans. You may recall that there was a set of loans that were called covenant light loans, which meant, in fact, that they didn't have the serious oversight and the serious criteria that would normally go along with corporate loans. Moreover, all this was occurring against a backdrop of a lot of money available for investment. There was low volatility in the financial markets, making investments look as if they were safe. And there was a sense of confidence that Mr. Greenspan and other central bankers could really get us through just about any blip in the economy. 
So what happened was when these underlying conditions worsened, people realized that all the investments in mortgages were dependent quite heavily on this rather benign set of conditions. And as soon as that began to unravel, then this occurred in a number of areas where previously we'd seen some, some vulnerabilities and some weaknesses. And it's worth noting that even though the, the crisis really started in the United States, many of those conditions existed worldwide, and that's why we're seeing this uh, become really a global crisis. Charles, how is it that the financial market that Laura just talked about affects the, the real economy that produces goods and services and creates jobs. How do they feed each other and affect each other? Uh, yeah, indeed, what we've seen is, is the operation of very corrosive feedback loops between the financial sector and the real sector that is, is, has made things uh, continue to get worse. Uh, there are a number of channels for these effects. Uh, looking first at the relationship the spillover from financial shocks to, to the real economy, uh, I would mention three particular channels. One is the famous credit crunch. As financial institutions have become increasingly concerned about their capital bases and about their funding, they've cut back on, on lending, they've increased interest rates, they've tightened their lending standards. And as a result, it's been much more difficult for consumers and businesses to get credit, for example, to buy a car or to buy a house or to finance exports. Uh, that's one channel, the credit channel. Another important channel is the wealth channel. There's been a massive destruction of wealth in, in the last uh, few months uh, with the enormous drop in, in equity prices, the continuing drop in, in house prices. Households are, are seeing much uh, weaker balance sheets uh, than, than uh, they've been accustomed to living with, and they're cutting back as a result. They want to, to rebuild their stocks of, of, of wealth, particularly in the United States, where the savings rate has been very low. Households are now realizing the value of saving. They're trying to build up their, their bank deposit. They see the potential for unemployment in, in, a, in a period ahead. So there's a lot of precautionary savings going on. And then the, the third channel I would mention is, is uncertainty. There's been a massive increase in uncertainty. No one quite understands what is, what is happening. Uh, and, and if you're someone you know, working but not quite sure if they're, you're going to keep your job or if you see you know, the value of your financial assets suddenly plummeting and maybe it's going to recover, maybe it's not, you, you hold back. You say, okay, maybe I'm, I'm not going to spend this month. Maybe I, I won't go out to dinner. Maybe I'll postpone the, the purchase of that car. So there's a lot of uh, nervousness which is leading people to, to hold back, and that applies to, to businesses as, as well as to, to households. So all of these effects going from the financial sector are weakening the real economy. And then in turn, the weakness in the real economy affects the financial sector. The housing market is weaker. There's greater foreclosures. There are greater defaults from both businesses and, and households, increasing bankruptcies. And this is increasing losses that financial institutions are facing. And with increasing losses, that erodes their capital base. It erodes the financial institution's ability to lend. So there's this circle, this very vicious circle, that is continuing, that, that we need to break. So what you're saying, then, is that we need to fix both the financial system and the real economy. Is that right, Laura? Absolutely. I think once you see how intertwined the financial system and the economy really are, it makes perfect sense that you have to attack both parts of it to break this downward spiral. In practice, of course, how exactly to do this is uh, quite challenging. We're currently seeing many countries combine government spending or a boost in fiscal expenditures to try to boost consumption demand and investment and get people back to work, and at the same time try various fixes for the financial system, both of which are really aimed at trying to get lending going again, which is the 
force that we anticipate will put the economy back on track. Um, I'm sure Charles can talk a little bit about how to make government spending most effective, but let me say just a few words about fixing the financial system. When a whole set of banks gets into difficulties, there are three general ingredients to fixing the problem. First is to make sure that liquidity flows to the banks so that they don't have to sell assets to obtain the funding they need to make loans. This is being done by central banks around the world, and they've gotten quite creative about how to get the money into the financial system. The next step really is to get it out of the financial system and into the hands of potentially households and, uh, and, in, and businesses. So the second thing you have to do is you really have to remove bad or toxic assets or isolate them or somehow ensure that the losses of these assets that are declining in value on the bank's balance sheet are somehow sequestered or they're no longer a threat to the bank's balance sheet. Recall that a bank, by law, has to maintain a certain amount of buffer or capital for bad times, and if that buffer falls too low, the bank needs to make up that buffer or needs to sell more assets. This is what we call deleveraging, and that's an important aspect of what's currently going on right now. So essentially, the balance sheet needs to be cleansed of all of these bad assets so that the bank can start over and start to lend comfortably again. The last element that needs to be in place to fix the financial system is that this cleansing process, when it, when it means that the bank has insufficient capital, that they need to get more capital from someplace, they need to recapitalize. If private investors are unwilling to do that, in part because they're uncertain about the prospects of that particular bank, or they're uncertain about the prospects for the economy, as Charles mentioned, that this uncertainty is, is out there, then the government may have to step in and provide that capital. And of course, we would expect the government to have some conditions attached to that that protect the taxpayers that are ultimately paying for the capital that goes into the banking system. So governments around the world with weak banking systems at the moment are really using all three steps. Their central banks are flooding the markets with liquidity, and their uh, government authorities are trying to figure out ways of getting bad assets off the balance sheets and recapitalizing the banks. And there are varying degrees of success. In the U.S., we are definitely seeing greater efforts going now into removing the toxic assets and trying to assess where to put the capital, how much, and what the conditions ought to be that are attached to it. I should emphasize that once you've decided that a bank is worth saving, it's actually very important to put in more capital than you think that they need. Every banking system problem that we've seen in the globe in the last 30 years has underestimated the amount of capital that would need to be put into the banking system to get things flowing again. So it's really got to be a situation in which you sort of overdo it at first in order to make sure that the bank really does have the ability to lend free and easy to borrowers that it thinks are going to be able to repay the loans. Charles, maybe you have some comments on the fiscal side. Yeah, and certainly on the fiscal side and, and, and also more broadly. And I think a point to recognize is that all the, the measures that, that Laura is describing will, will take time to put into place. It's going to take a substantial amount of time to, to restore confidence in the health of the financial system, uh, however well policies are designed. And during that time, the economy is going to be weak, and we need to make sure it doesn't get any weaker. The economy needs to be put on, on life support, so to speak. So we need strong stimulus from both the monetary side and, and also the fiscal side. Monetary policy uh, is increasingly running out of room, 
as interest rates have, have already been cut down uh, quite substantially. In the United States, interest rates are already close to zero. In Japan, they've been close to zero for, for some time. In Europe, there's, there's still some space. But I think central banks will need to think increasingly about unconventional ways of, of easing monetary policy conditions through what uh, Ben Bernanke has called credit easing measures, ways that the central bank can use its balance sheet to unlock illiquid credit markets. Um, we see this beginning to happen now uh, here in the US and the UK and in Japan. The uh, central banks are uh, stepping into these markets and, and helping to, to, to restart the, the flow of financing, which is certainly very welcome. However, in these uncertain times with credit channels disrupted, we also think it's very important uh, to support the economy through substantial uh, fiscal action across a, a range of countries that, that have fiscal space. And if you're looking at fiscal stimulus, the most effective form of fiscal stimulus is, is clearly on the, the spending side. It has a direct impact on demand. Tax reductions can, can also be helpful if, if well targeted to people who are likely to spend the, the tax cut. But some people will, will save the money from a tax cut. So we think tax cuts are, are somewhat less effective than spending. And, and we see this as an opportunity for countries that, that have held back on, on spending, for example, on infrastructure for some time. We think that uh, money that's well targeted at boosting infrastructure or, or other uh, spending priorities can help both to shore up short-term demand, but also improve the, the longer-term prospects uh, for economies. But let me also mention a, a third aspect here. So far, we've been mainly talking about the impact of the crisis on, on the advanced economies. But we should also recognize that this is a global crisis. If all countries are being affected, middle-income countries, low-income countries are also being affected quite severely, both through the reduction in, in demand for their exports, uh, through falls in commodity prices, uh, and through the, 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 the shortages of, of financing. Uh, and I think it will be important to find a way to, to maintain uh, financing flows to, to uh, emerging and developing countries as, as much as possible over the year ahead. And this is an area where, in fact, the, the International Monetary Fund can, can play an, an important role. Indeed, we are already uh, stepping up our lending to, to a number of countries, and we are ready to, to contribute uh, in this area over the year ahead. We, we do expect uh, that, that uh, there will be continuing pressures on emerging markets. It will be very important to, to sustain the flow of financing to these countries. Charles, when, when you made the World Economic Outlook forecast just recently, you knew about all the stimulus packages that were in play, and yet you predicted a far worse outcome than you were predicting just three months ago. Laura, things looked pretty much the same in the Global Financial Stability Report with losses far greater predicted in January than you were predicting in October. So let me ask you both, um, why, despite all the, the actions by governments and are we likely to see even worse forecasts when we, when we come again to do this in April? Charles? Well, it's, I'm not sure where we will be in, in April. Our most recent forecast was in January. Certainly that was a very substantial markdown from our previous forecast that we prepared in October. I think it was not fully appreciated the extent to which the financial strains we'd, would be persistent despite the, the very strong efforts made by authorities and the very negative interaction between the, the real sector and the financial sector that I, that I discussed earlier. So we, we did uh, mark down our, our forecast quite substantially in, in January. We do now have the advanced economies going through their deepest recession of the entire post-war period. 
uh, even larger than in, in uh, 1974, 75, after the oil price shock, and, and even larger than in, in 1982. We see a somewhat more resilience in the emerging economies, but still they would be slowing abruptly. But we do see that these countries are reaping some benefits from, from stronger policy management in, in recent years, and that, that's one of the positive features that, that we see in, in recent times. But the emerging economies, too, will be hard hit, and as I mentioned, some of them are going to face difficult external financing situations. Laura? Well, as you recall, our number did, our loss number did uh, increase quite substantially in the last round. It's important to keep in mind that that loss number is for U.S.-based assets only, even though those assets are held by many other countries, primarily in Europe, um, a little in the Far East. Mainly, the degradation of this number was related to a couple of features. One is that commercial real estate securities in the United States have deteriorated quite rapidly as the commercial real estate market has been starting to be hit. And secondly is the loan books of banks. So we've really divided up our loss estimates into two components. One are loans that are sitting on banks' balance sheets, and the other one are a set of securitized products that were the outcome of the securitization boom that ended really in the summer of 2007. And it's really the loan book that we're now focusing on because with this this feedback loop into the real economy, we expect that more loans will go bad in the future, and that's what's going to hit the U.S.-based estimates quite heavily. We're hopeful that we can extend our analysis to institutions and countries outside of the United States, but this is a very challenging exercise. The U.S. has reasonably good data from which to start making estimates, and outside of the United States, it becomes more difficult to piece things together. And we are, despite our sort of focal point here at at the fund, subject to using publicly available data for many of these things. So we do have to sort of collect the data by hand and try to make estimates with it. So it's hard to say what um, March or or April release of the GFSR, which will be put together in March, will bring. But my guess is if the economy shows further degradation from where we expected it to be in January, we might see uh, upward movement in our loss estimates for U.S.-based assets. And, of course, we'll come out perhaps with an estimate of other assets, which will increase the total loss numbers globally. Well, we've been talking about fixing problems in both the real economy and the financial economy, and they're sort of short-term issues. What can we learn long-term from this crisis, I think is a fair word to call it. Charles? There's certainly going to be a lot to learn long-term, and uh, there are going to be economists writing their theses on on those lessons for for many years. Uh, We're we're just at the beginning of of the process of of thinking back and and, and learning from this this experience. I think think one clear lesson is going to be that uh, we all need to pay much greater attention to the dangers of of asset price bubbles than, than we have in the past. Uh, there was certainly a debate about the, the appropriate response of monetary policy to, to asset price booms, but the conclusion of that debate had, had seemed to be, well, it's very difficult to know when the, the, the asset price boom is truly an unsustainable boom, and it's difficult to do anything about it, and, well, when, when the boom turns into bust, we can always pick up the pieces afterwards. That was sort of the conventional wisdom. But I think at, at this point, it's, it's hard to, to subscribe to that conventional wisdom anymore. Uh, the, the, the devastating impact 
uh, of the of this uh, boom and bust cycle is, is has just been enormous. So I think uh, macroeconomic policy will need to pay more attention to the potential for the buildup of, of asset price bubbles. But we also need to look uh, closely at how macroeconomic policy fits with regulatory policies, because clearly macroeconomic policy by itself isn't going to be able to prevent the blowing up of, the, of these bubbles. Uh, but hopefully the combination of more responsive macroeconomic policies that pay attention to concerns with financial stability as, as well as to price stability, combined with more proactive efforts uh, by regulators to control uh, risk, uh, the building up of risk during periods of, 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 of euphoria, really, in which, in which, uh, in which markets become overexcited by, by, by opportunities. Hopefully the, that combination will help to reduce the extent of asset price bubbles in the future. Laura? Yeah, let me reemphasize, I think, this notion that financial stability is an important goal in and of itself and that central banks and regulators and supervisors both need to have financial stability as part of their mandate. Neither can do it individually and both need to do it collectively in terms of setting up systems and and procedures for being able to make sure that stability is part of what they are examining. Let me just also add that the current set of policies that we're putting in place in order to revamp the banking system need to have an exit strategy in mind in their developmental stage. We've seen a number of governments act in the heat of battle, so to speak, with various reforms without probably due regard to how the final landscape will look. And there is a need to understand how one would enter and exit some of these policies. I'm thinking specifically about how central banks would exit their emergency liquidity supports by allowing private sector to pay more for the liquidity that's being subscribed over time as conditions become safer and more and less turbulent. I'm also thinking of areas in which there has to be more um, attention to how governments might exit their capital insertions into banks and how they're going to exit essentially owning parts of banks. These are elements that one should think of in advance of putting the money in and how you're going to get out. Thanks. Well, thanks to you both. It's been a, an enlightening, if somewhat frightening, uh, 20 minutes or so. Uh, so let me again thank Mr. Charles Carlins of the IMF's World Economic Outlook and Laura Codris of the Global Financial Stability Report for being with us today. We'll be back in March to explore other aspects of the global economic crisis with experts from the International Monetary Fund. Thank you. Thank you.